Hello and welcome to Future Thinking with Stylus. Coming to you this week from New York, I'm your host, Christian Ward, Head of Media and Marketing at Stylus. And today we're talking about drone racing, the sports of the future. That's according to the Drone Racing League, founded by our guest today, Nicholas Orbicheski. Also joining me um, and Nicholas, we have Claire Murray, Stylus Advisory Strategist and Drone Racing Aficionado. Uh, she's giving me a scary look there. Uh, thank you both for joining us. Um, so first, Nicholas... What is drone racing and what made you think it would make for a successful new sport? Drone racing is exactly what it sounds like. It is competitive drone racing. We take very fast drones. We have world-class pilots race them through complex three-dimensional courses. And we are the Drone Racing League. So we set up events around the world, uh, host a championship, broadcast it uh, to more than 90 countries, and at the end of the season, crown a world champion. So who's taking part? I mean, who, who are the, the drone racers? Who are the audience? Yeah. So drone racing itself is actually a sport that's, that's far bigger than just our league. It's actually a global sport. It started in about 2010 down in Australia. And by the time I got involved in the sport in late 2014, early 2015, it had spread all over the world. It's sort of this amateur underground sport. People would home make these drones that meet up in fields and parking lots and race them. And to this day, there's, there's hundreds of thousands of people who participate in these amateur tournaments around the world. So it's a very cool sport. We're one part of it. We're, we're the professional side of it. So we try to elevate that sport into something that people want to watch. Watch, want to watch on TV, want to watch in person, and and spread it around. And you mentioned they're watching it on TV. I mean, th- th- you have a pretty huge audience, right, on TV? So yeah, that's... yeah, tens of millions of people see DRL uh, every season. We're broadcast, as I said, ninety countries. We're uh, here in the US. We're on NBC and NBC Sports, as well as Twitter in the UK. We're on Sky, um, ProSieben in Germany, uh, and the list just goes on. So, what um, I want to talk about. There's the fan base here because at Stylus we write a lot about, say, esports, for example, and mm-hmm. the, and the ways that the the fan base and fandom of esports is really changing, uh, really different from what's come before. It's a lot more. Um, there's a lot more kind of intimacy between the the fans and the audience and the the, the competitors. There's a real closeness there um, because of things like Twitch, where you know there's an interactive element to to watching this sport. So is that is that something you're seeing with drone racing too? Is there a, is there a, a different kind of vibe here with 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 the the fandom of drone racing than what we've seen before? Definitely, D- drone racing is an interesting sport because we like to say it sits on the blurry line between the digital and the real. So we're very much like real sports. If you come to our events, there are real drones going 90 miles an hour through a building, hitting a wall, exploding into a million pieces. It's it's very much like a traditional racing sport, but at the same time, the pilots are controlling it with a remote control. They're looking at a Goggle, they have goggles on their face that have little screens in them, so it, it has many elements of esports. So it sort of sits uh, somewhere between digital sports and and real sports. And so we attract fans from both sides of that. We have fans that are interested in esports and that sort of fast paced, you know, entertainment sport dynamic, and we have people who just love the act of racing. And so you sort of bring those together. You have something very different going on. And I think it's it's interesting for for our fans. Um, you know, they do get a form of intimacy with the pilots because our pilots go out, they're flying eight, 10 hours a day with these drones out in the world. They're filming videos of it. They post it online. People will follow them and are basically watching their training, watching them go on these adventures with drones almost every day, which is quite different, I think, than a traditional sports athlete. We are really not like watching a video of uh, some, you know, soccer player kicking the ball over and over again and training every day. So I think it does bring a sort of personal, intimate relationship. The pilots are bringing their fans with them. Yeah. On on their daily flying. Great. Yeah, I mean, that really speaks to this sort of trend that we've seen over the past few years of, of people wanting more 
um, sort of back backstage information, more sort of insight and and, and sort of um, access to to the the people that they follow because mm-hmm. there is this kind of collapsing of hierarchies between the people watching and the people playing, and it's becoming more and more like a, a level playing field for everybody. Mm-hmm. Do you see that too? Yeah, definitely. I mean, our, our sport has another unique element in that, um, again, blurring digital and real. So uh, we have a video game. It's called the DRL Simulator. You can download it. It'll teach you how to race a drone. We have tryouts through that. So once a year, we open it up and say, anyone in the world can try out through this game. We have an online competition. We bring those people together for a live eSport event. And the winner of that goes on to become a professional drone racer. We give them a contract to go fly real drones against the 11 other best pilots in the world. And so people can come up through the experience of gaming. They can come into the sport through purely through simulation, through gaming, and it can transform their lives. And we have people who are basically pro gamers who won this tournament and are now professional drone racers traveling the world racing real drones. And what sort of money are we talking about when it comes to professional winnings in drone racing? I mean, the winner of the of the online tryouts gets a $75,000 a year contract to be a pilot. Um, and then obviously, obviously the opportunity to earn more is they interact with brands and, and go out and build their own social media presence and really become a celebrity in this, this world of drone racing. So you mentioned there, uh, brands. I mean, we, I know that Swatch, for example, is a primary sponsor, um, of the drone racing league. Um, you explain what do they get out of it? How does the partnership work? What's, um, you know, what, what's the, the benefits there? There are two big things I think that made sponsorship in, in our world a little bit different than in traditional sports. So the, the first one is obviously the demographic we're reaching. We're reaching this demographic who uh, they're young, they're very focused on technology, they they do love esports and other things, but they they are less into traditional sports. So it's a way to reach people uh, through a real life sport that has live events that you know otherwise are very tough to reach through traditional sports. Um, we sometimes call them the lost generation. They're people that just don't follow traditional sports in the way people used to but are very interested uh, in technology-enabled sport. I think the, the second thing that makes our sport really different from a sponsorship perspective is that, you know, this is a – people call it the sport of the future. It's this sci-fi experience. Come to one of our events and there's neon drones flying through three-dimensional tracks and, you know, we theme the different uh, races. And so it's, it, it is very unique and we're creating our own sporting environment. And that lets us be really creative and, and authentic in how we integrate brands and messages. Partner like Swatch that you just mentioned, I mean, one of the gates on the course is an enormous – watch an enormous swatch watch that the pilots fly through every time and our fans love it they'll the 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 watch gate is one of the most difficult parts of the course pilots crash there all the time they'll feverishly debate which pilot advantage or disadvantages and that's that's authentic integration that isn't spray painting your logo on a field that is actually making your brand part of the sport well it sounds clear it sounds amazing and it sounds like you know it's going to change or could change a lot of things for traditional sports um do you see, you know, do you see the sports landscape having to adapt here? Absolutely. And I mean, when we think about traditional sports, I think it's it's so different because it became what it is in a completely different era where technology wasn't as prevalent as it is today. And when you look at the DRL, I think it's so fascinating that the digital viewership opportunities and the live events really have come to be what they are in the same time. It's a very complementary relationship between live and digital. Um, and, and like Nicholas said, I mean, that, that mixed reality experience is, is in some ways part of it. But traditional sports, you know, they have, 
I think they have a long ways to come in regards to the immersive experiences. I know, obviously, watching football or, or baseball or soccer on TV um, is quite normal. But what about the immersive experience um, that hasn't been normalized yet? And I think the DRL really has, in many ways, made that more normal on the live and virtual side. So, yes, I do think traditional sports has some catching up to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, to give traditional sports its due, there are some developments that I've seen recently, um, certainly in terms of VR experiences. I know mm-hmm. that Fox, I believe, for the World Cup had uh, VR uh, watching, watching experiences that you could try out. Um, I know the NBA are very good with their tech innovation. Um, and we're seeing some really interesting things being done with AI in terms of instant highlights packages and that sort of thing. Uh, from the, from the broadcast perspective, are you looking at those sorts of innovations too as to how to change the, the spectator experience as well? We definitely look at that stuff. I mean, we're very fortunate that our sport is authentically immersive. I mean, the, the way you fly the drone is by putting on these goggles that really put you inside the drone. So we can share, we can share that experience with fans and have them sort of experience that in a way. I, I think the challenge around it though is like, you know, I, I think when you, when you look at those innovations you're talking about, we, we don't like to go crazy with them. We don't, we don't go too hard on 360 or VR or anything else because it, it doesn't necessarily enhance the experience of watching a sport. It's something different. I mean, I think that's why we're so excited. About, the opportunities we have because we control the field of play, because we're using advanced technology that every year gives us new capabilities, we can continue to ramp up the innovation and, frankly, the entertainment around our sport in a way that's really hard in traditional sports. I mean, you can film it in a different way, but you're not fundamentally changing what's happening on the field. So, Claire, I'd like to ask you, uh, talk a little bit about how this goes. I mean, I'm going to say how it goes mainstream, which is kind of crazy thing to say when we're talking about millions and millions of people watching. But, you know, people still talk about esports going mainstream. And obviously, mm-hmm. for the for the audience, it's a mainstream concern. Um, but for, for older audiences, and particularly older media brands and so on, that, that people are still cautious about this kind of stuff in terms of doing sponsorships and getting involved. So uh, with 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 these with these kind of sports, what do you think needs to – how do you think that brands can understand the benefits for them in terms of what they can get out of it? What do you think the consumer drivers here are that they need to tap into? Oh, there are so many. What a loaded question. <laughs> um, I mean, I think the brands that have not already gotten involved really have the advantage of seeing some of what, what brands who already are involved, what they've done. I mean, they're not – because the swatch example, I mean, flying through the watch, like right there, that's just an incredible case study. Um, I think marketers would just love to to tear apart and really analyze like how that's been so successful. But as far as is ways to get involved, and you mentioned older generations, I think oftentimes generations that are older right now to really see a sport become, as you would say, mainstream. I want to throw quotations up around. Yeah, that. I think we need to. Yeah, then. I think we need to. Um, but in, in regards to it going mainstream, I know, I, I mean, I think about my parents' generation and I think a lot of that for them has, they have to see it in real life. And as events, you know, as, as they become more normal, I guess are, are more, more of them. Um, I think that'll be really interesting for older generations. I do think also, you know, as major sports networks continue to show it, um, and just like peak interest, I think that'll be interesting. But the consumer drivers though for brand opportunities, um, I mean, 
the the same type of fan obsession that we see. Um, I think there are a lot of opportunities with the drivers, the the actual drone drivers, in being this next generation of sport influencers. Mm. I think that's an incredible brand opportunity because you not only get some of the the DRL equity and just the Star Wars like coolness of that, but you also get the personality of the driver and really get to follow their journey. Um, so globally, where is this blowing up? Because, you know, it's, it's big here. I think it's big, big in Asia, I, I believe. Uh, are those the, the, the key markets for you or are you looking at, you know, world domination? <laughs> Definitely world domination. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, w- one of the things I love about drone racing is, is it's an authentically global sport. I mean, long before I got involved in it, you had drone racing on – Every corner of the planet. I mean, when I when I started really looking into drone racing in early 2015, I found amateur organized drone racing in every country I looked at. Um, it's a sport that crosses language barriers. It crosses cultural barriers. I, I hope one day someone writes a great history of drone racing because it's just such an interesting thing. I mean, you were talking about a sport that was invented in people's garage and spread around the world through message boards and chat boards and Facebook groups. No money behind it, no TV, no brands, really no endemics even. This was people home-making stuff off of parts ordered off the internet and getting together to race. And it still hopped from country to country, language to language. And I think that's incredible. And you know, when we go around the world with our events, we've done events across North America, Europe, the Middle East. We're going to Asia. You know, you find the same fan there. You find the same excitement there. And I think that's incredible. I think – the future of sports is global, and it's so it's really fun for us to be working in a sport that we're not convincing the world that it's global. We're not taking some regional sport and trying to push it out. We're hopping into an authentically global sport and just trying to make sure that we uh, share it with the fans everywhere. So you mentioned earlier then about sort of not diving into every tech innovation that's coming in terms of VR and so on, but where do you see um, – because clearly in five, ten years, the technology will advance – to, to a huge degree and you could be doing literally anything you want with this kind of blurring of digital and real. Where do, where do you see this going in five, ten years? Well, if you want to go out five, ten years, I, mean, I, I actually think there's like a bigger fundamental change coming in sports f- overall. And I think we're a bit of a harbinger for it. So when people ask us to define ourselves, they're always, are you, are you a racing sport? Are you an e-sport? Because you kind of look like video games. And, and we define ourselves as a robotic sport. Uh, and we think we're probably the first globally televised robotic sport and we define ourselves as robotic sport because what's on the field of play for us is a robot. It's being remotely controlled by a human. But when that drone flies through a gate and then misses the next corner and smashes into a wall, it's a, it's a robot out there. And what you can do when you put robots in the field of play is fundamentally different than when you have people. And I think we're at just the beginning of a robotic sport revolution. As robotics improves and we start to see them in households and industrial use, people are immediately going to start using those types of robots for sport. And you think about what it means when you don't have the sort of moral hazard of putting people in the way and you have things out there that have unbelievable power, potential, speed, performance that can be upgraded, you start to really see two, two things come out of it. You, you create a sport that is can be visually entertaining in a way that I think it's there's a limit to what you can do with human sports. And the second thing is you have a sport that can constantly evolve in a really authentic and exciting way. And for our fans who live and breathe technology, right, they are hanging on the next iPhone release and watching all the releases and trying to find out what's going on, you know, to, to bring that type of joy of technology innovation and following that into sport and combine those things is a really special thing. Claire, Claire, are you positive about the robotic future as well in terms of what we're seeing from our work at Stylus? I am. I'm, I'm optimistic. I feel positive, hopeful. I mean, as long as it doesn't have a Will Smith-like ending to it, <laughs> I think we'll, <laughs> we're all a bit, um, a bit safe. 
Do you see? So, do you see the future in some respects as as pilot pilotless drone racing and AI driven machines that can fly themselves and so on? I, I think it'll be both. So we've we've got an AI racing circuit. It's called Air. So it's for artificial intelligence robotic racing. We actually just had our first event recently. So these are where teams from around the world program an AI pilot, and then we load that onto the drone, and they compete against each other. And the goal of that program is to it speed the development of artificial intelligence, in particular computer vision-based uh, autonomous systems, to reach the point where you have one that can compete with a top human pilot. Let me, let me just stop you there because I want to get into the, the details of what you just said there in terms of computer vision because I, you know, I don't understand that. Yeah, I'm yeah, sure, sure some of some of our listeners may not either. What, what, what does that involve? Sure. So, so we, we have a racing circuit called AIR, and that involves these drones. They're much larger than the drones that the humans fly. These are the, the drones that fly in the human league are about the size of a dinner plate. These AI drones are about the size of a pizza box. So quite large. They're carrying a very powerful computer on board, and they have four cameras on them. So they see the world just the way we see the world with a pair of cameras. So they're, they're looking at the world. They don't have sensors and lasers and radar, anything else. They're just looking at the world and they have to fly through the same kind of complex three-dimensional courses we put the humans through. But what's flying them is, is, is an artificial intelligence. It is, a, it is a program that's loaded on there that's designed to fly drones, look at the world, learn how to fly. Um, and right now they are slower than human pilots, but they are getting faster. And there's this real, we're trying to accelerate to the point where they're sort of at a similar performance level. So when we talk about, you know, um, computer vision means that they're seeing uh, through the cameras and AI means that, you know, once they take, you know, that, that is a program running them. And then the autonomous part means that once they take off, there's no human intervention during the racing. So the drone has to make all the decisions on its own on board and reach the finish line first. So do you expect that that um, machine learning capability to reach a point of perfection faster than a human pilot would? Perfection in inverted commas. I mean, would they will they be able to complete the course perfectly faster because they're the algorithms are just better than our brains at doing that sort of thing? Or well, today they're much slower. Yeah. So today they're way behind humans. So what's what's interesting about it is if you put it head to head with a top human pilot, a human pilot would win every time. And so what we're trying to do is accelerate that pace. And I think it'll be a fascinating process to watch the AI catch up to human performance and match it, and then beat it. But then I think after it beats it, the humans will be learning a lot from the AIs at the same time. And then you'll see kind of a back and forth where both sides are getting better. They're learning from each other when they're close to evenly matched. I think that, you know, people sometimes sort of compare it to like chess, chess playing computers in deep blue when it finally beat a person. But then there was a brief era where you're learning uh, how to play together and you can learn from each other. And I just think it's exciting. I mean, this, this whole thing started with the dream of having a robot, you know, an, an AI be one of the competitors in the league competing side by side with humans. Yeah. I can imagine there's other companies that are quite interested in what you're doing. Um, you know, uh, are you talking to, you know, other uh, outside of sports, other, other companies that want to use this sort of technology? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, if you look at something like the Air Circuit, it's sponsored by Lockheed Martin, which is a big technology company here in the U.S., uh, partially because they're very interested in reaching a new generation of AI programmers. People are interested in this. People are interested in science and engineering, and, and sports is a great way to do that. So we talk to a whole range of companies. I mean, you know, we like, we like the fact that our – uh, partners and sponsors for what we do in TRL extend beyond the traditional just, you know, energy drink brands, right? It's not just people who are consumer products companies. We, you know, we work with companies that are trying to say, okay, we want to reach, you know, young programmers and inspire them to work on autonomous systems. And we can do that through sport and entertainment, uh, like what we're doing in air, as well as the DRL Alliance World Championship, which mm -hmm. is our, our human circuit. Great.
Fantastic. Well, I, Claire, is there anything that we haven't mentioned that you wanted to bring in? I am curious just about as we look at the next generation of consumers, the expectation of inclusivity in the organizations, the businesses, um, even the hobbies that they that they interact with. That really is currently a desire, but we're seeing that just really encouraging that it's going to grow to the point where it is a basic expectation. And I think robotic sports could be a really interesting way that in the future, sports and professional sports is truly inclusive where a, you know, traditional or a handicapped person would not be able to compete in a traditional sense, but in you know, the DRL, they would be potentially could be a global star. Um, have you thought about this as, as part of kind of incorporating a different type of community and being inclusive and in who drives the drones? Definitely. I mean, drone racing is, is fantastic in that it is a sport that is open to people of all different physical ability levels, you know, all ages, all genders. I mean, it's, it's great. It really is very open. And I think it, it, you know, putting a robot out on the field of play levels the playing field and it's about that human input. Um, I think the other thing from an inclusivity standpoint, the, the immediate effect of it, I think we think about our fans and I talk about this sort of lost generation of fans for whom, you know, the, physical feats of a, of a, of a traditional sport athlete just doesn't resonate with them, right? That isn't what they aspire to. And I, what I like about drone racing is it teaches you about science, it teaches you about engineering, it teaches you, uh, you know, programming, hand-eye coordination, and the skills that people are using are, or, or in the case of air, where they're programming an AI in and of itself, like th- those are much more relevant to what people are going to do for their occupation. It's going to do with their with their lives. I mean, drone racing is a, has a has a serious component of sort of intellectual pursuit to it, mm-hmm. and I think that's great to align that with a world where, frankly, that's that's where a lot of the careers and jobs are going. They're about science, technology, programming, you know, the intellectual pursuits, um, and I think that's exciting to give people a sport that they can feel is exciting. It's their hobby. It's fun. It's 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 got all the traditional excitement of sport, but then you're bringing in things that are really relevant to their daily lives. Yeah, absolutely. I love that there, there really is a seat for everyone at the table. And then at the same, you know, as the, as the drivers become more diverse, there really is a chance for every type of individual to be a fan, which I think is such a opportunity for brands really, because when you think about, you know, brands partnering with a, a sports league or, um, you know, a, a product that specifically wants to attach itself to a specific demographic of consumer. And the DRL really, in many ways, opens up so many different opportunities for what that demographic looks like because it is such an inclusive sport, which is really, you know, I think we can all agree is really hopeful, um, but is also such an opportunity for brands. I definitely agree. And I think you layer onto that the fact that it's a relatively new sport, right? That one of mm-hmm. the things brands can do now with drone racing, which is an option, as you say, it's, it's inclusive of a lot of different people. They can go out to those communities they want to talk to. They can bring that the sport to that community in a big way. So it mm-hmm. becomes sort of a two-way dialogue as opposed to just tapping that community that's already participating and saying, hey, we want, we want to support you in what you're doing. And we, we've seen brands do that, reach out and say, you know, one part of this, we've had, we've had races where a brand or a city brings us to an area and immediately has to set up a STEM education program. Program. And we're working mm-hmm. with, you know, high school and grade school age kids to teach them about STEM because they say we want to and, and get them excited about the sport, get them into the sport, you know, create a sort of lifelong interest in science and technology. I think it's pretty special. There, there are new sports do have that awesome power of giving brands a moment where the brand can be the ambassador bringing something new to a community. And that that doesn't last very long. So mm-hmm. uh, it's definitely an exciting time for us. Yeah, that's great. So when you think about Traditional sports. I mean, especially growing up in the U.S., I think of, you know, fall, like the leaves are changing. Okay, it's time for football, Mm -hmm. right? And there's this entire culture around football. So when we think about 
the future of the DRL in, in ways of interacting with futuristic culture and these younger consumers as they grow up. Do you foresee or have you already started to see elements of, okay, the DRL season's about to start or it's time for tryouts? And with that, there are brand opportunities that come along at these, you know, varying times of year and almost activities of the fans that like to watch the DRL. They are, you know, where are they when they watch and are they with groups of people or is it singular watching, right? Like this culture surrounding the league, like what have you seen regarding that? Yeah, it's, it's real. I mean, it's, it's a year long sport already. I mean, tryout season in the winter where people are getting ready and, you know, participating in these online tryouts, no matter where you are in the world, even if the weather is bad, you can participate through simulation. You can be competing against your friends and then going into the early season, we're starting to do events and watching it. Our season is relatively long. It stretches out about half of the year because Mm -hmm. we're going all over the globe. And I think our fans really like that. It isn't always on sport. And there are different you know, peaks to our year that fans and brands can engage with in different ways. It also is cool that it's a global sport because it means that you actually see the sort of trends in participation shifting around the world as summer and winter flip in the northern and southern hemisphere. Mm-hmm. It's a, you know, the outdoor component of the sport, getting out and flying your drone, mm-hmm. change. You know, some pe- people are going inside and playing the sim and some people are going back outside and flying. And you see that that global community exchanging those experiences uh, as the seasons change in their their local markets. Interesting. I think it, it will be curious to see younger generations that grow up with robotic sports that are always on, they're global, um, and just seeing how how that entertainment for them and that interaction with that sport will change how they view sports as a whole. Because traditional sports do operate, I say traditional, but how long will we be allowed to say that? Old sports, mm-hmm. um, right? They, they operate in such a different way. So it'll be interesting to see. There's an odd combination, too, of, of these technology-enabled sports are also deeply linked to communication. You know, our pilots post videos almost every day on YouTube mm-hmm. of what they're doing, and people are getting real-time communication. And so you create a global community with a exchange of information of what they're doing in a way that I think um, traditional sports has yet to catch up to, that sort of constant communication around social networking about. And the sport is integrated into that, and the communication is integrated to that. And it means that people have a, a global experience when they're playing the sport, even if they're never leaving their hometown. Great. Great. That's fantastic. Really fascinating. A lot there to learn, I think, for traditional sports brands and any brand really that's entering, uh, trying to engage uh, younger audiences. Um, Thank you very much. I'd like to thank my guests, Nicholas Orbicheski and Claire Murray. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll join us next time for more Future Thinking from Stylus. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. If you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available. 